0: to a special bonus episode of Power Problems, our podcast from the Cato Institute that offers a skeptical take of US foreign policy and discusses some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. And I'm Caroline Dormany, a policy analyst here at Cato. Ever since he descended a golden elevator to announce his run for the presidency, Donald Trump has been reviled by America's foreign policy elite. Yet many of Trump's statements on foreign policy actually resonated pretty broadly with the public. It's not a stretch to imagine that his willingness to criticize America's foolish wars in the Middle East might actually have helped to elect him. So joining us today, we have one of the best-known academic critics of American foreign policy today, Stephen Walt. He's a professor at Harvard University's Kennedy School and has a new book out, The Hell of Good Intentions. In the book, he argues that Donald Trump benefited electorally from his willingness to criticize the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. But the book goes further and it tries to diagnose the problems with US foreign policy, understand how it got so messed up, and offer some suggestions on how we might actually try and fix it. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for being here.
1: It's really a pleasure.
0: As always, we're going to start with a brief roundup of the week's news, Um, and this week I want to start with the big story, the story that no one would have expected to be so big, and that's the disappearance of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the disturbing suggestion that he was murdered inside the Saudi consulate. This has created a bit of a diplomatic firestorm. Congress, uh, congressmen are considering sanctions on Saudi Arabia, um, think tanks are returning Saudi money, consultancies are dropping Saudi lobbying deals. Um, none of this would have been expected even two weeks ago. The White House, though, continues to defend Saudi Arabia. So the real question is, is the Saudi US alliance actually on the rocks for once?
1: If I had to guess, I think that they'll smooth this over. and uh, you know, the. The offenses or whatever they ultimately turn out to be, and it certainly doesn't look good now, will ultimately be uh, be swept under the rug. We've forgiven lots of countries, including Saudi Arabia, for all sorts of uh, pretty awful behavior. And there's been no sign so far from the uh, Trump administration that they're prepared to get really hard-nosed about this.
2: There have been significant indicators in Congress, though, that people are willing to legislate on that. And and it's particularly... um prescient in arms sales because we send so much uh, military equipment and assistance to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and that is a power that Congress can actually have influence over. It is ruled mainly by the executive, but Congress acts as kind of a, a final emergency break. And so even if the Trump administration stays strong on this issue, Congress could still exert significant sway if they choose to start offering resolutions of disapproval on arms sales.
1: Yeah. I think the other interesting sort of question mark here is what the response to the American business community is going to be, uh, partly for sort of concerns and moral outrage, but more that this is another sign that Mohammed bin Salman is uh, simply unpredictable and is willing to do things that if you're from, you know, from a purely commercial or business perspective should make you very nervous. Um, and given that the Saudi development plans all depend on some level of foreign investment, this could have real consequences for their own ability to go forward.
0: Especially since it comes from a place where investment in Saudi Arabia has actually been dropping over the last year. People don't really talk about it, but basically ever since Mohammed bin Salman imprisoned all those Saudi businessmen and princes in the Ritz-Carlton, investors have been pretty much spooked by this. Um, But I want to go back to the arms sales question because that is in fact Donald Trump's defense of Saudi Arabia. He says, we don't want to make a big issue of it because arms sales create so many jobs in the US.
2: Well, that's kind of a tricky question. They do sustain some jobs. um, But an important thing to keep in mind when you're talking about arms sales and the economic benefit from it is that, first of all, the American government isn't really getting any of that money. It all goes straight into American businesses. So there's no net gain from the federal government in brokering any of these deals. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is, Investment in defense industries does not necessarily promote or produce the same amount of jobs as, you know, investment in the Department of Education, investment in infrastructure. Those all those sectors create more jobs on balance than the same amount of investment in defense. Um and I think it's also kind of important to note an industry trend where Yes, there are jobs being created in America, but there are also all of these um, defense contractors and defense industries that are starting to build production facilities elsewhere. So there's actually production facilities in Saudi Arabia to start producing and manufacturing a lot of the weapons that we're sending over there. You see the same thing in countries like Japan that we also do a lot of exports for. So it's not always just American jobs that are created. It's a lot of jobs overseas
1: yeah i just had one other point is that you hear numbers like you know 100 billion dollars worth of arms sales um, whatever. When ha- one has to understand is that's not a check for $100 billion that's going to arrive next week. Um, this is money that uh, eventually would come to the United States over many years, uh, long contracts. So the actual annual amounts turn out to be a few billion dollars at most. And in a $17 trillion economy, you know, five million or $5 billion of arms sales is actually really just a drop in the bucket. So there's a question of does the United States want to uh, sort of mortgage its, both its moral standing, but also in some respects, it's strategic commitments for what are ultimately relatively small numbers in terms of the larger American economy.
0: Well, I think this is probably going to be a discussion that we're going to keep having here on the podcast and in the public sphere, and that in and of itself is pretty surprising. But I want to move on to a second quick news topic just before we move on, because um, the first lady, Melania Trump, actually just finished up um, one of her first foreign tours. She went to Africa. She went to four African countries. And her message was somewhat lost in the controversy over her clothes. She basically dressed in these very colonial style clothes. Um, The Trump administration, of course, is increasing its military commitment to Africa, even as it cuts back on foreign aid. So what do we think about this? Is the First Lady's trip indicative of anything? Or is the Trump administration just really conflicted about its Africa policy?
1: Uh, I guess I would say the Trump administration, you know, does not have a particularly coherent Africa policy, but uh, in some respects, that doesn't make it unique. Uh, You could argue that previous administrations, although they would occasionally, um, you know, devote some public relations and a little bit of lip service to Africa, uh, didn't have a particularly coherent approach to the continent as well. And unfortunately, uh, since uh, 9-11, much of America's Africa policy has been under the counterterrorism umbrella, which in my view, has not succeeded very well. We've sort of deepened our commitments there, but the problems that Africa is facing from various extremist groups have not gotten any better.
2: That's that's fair. I think... um... I don't think the previous administration necessarily had a cohesive Africa policy that it was pursuing with great interest. Um, and I think the Trump administration is largely doing the same of just kind of piecemeal responding to things as they come down the pipeline. There are significant military operations happening right now in Somalia and the Horn of Africa. Those have been ongoing and I think they will continue to be ongoing and probably a pivot point for their Africa policy.
0: Well, it doesn't seem like our commitment to Africa, at least in counterterrorism, is going anywhere anytime soon. Um, Let's move on then. Um, And before we get into our main topic of the day, I do want to ask our guest our surprise question of the day. Um, And that's, if you could tell us a little about how you got into international affairs. Um, Was there something that particularly inspired you? A book, a teacher, a course, a life experience that pushed you to pursue this as, as your topic of study?
1: Um, it certainly wasn't a particular event, and I think it, it very much uh, was my upbringing. Uh, my father uh, was a physicist, um, and so I was kind of a science nerd uh, to the extent that I took school seriously at all, um, and went off to college uh, intending to study chemistry and be a biochemist because I was really interested in things like that. Um, my other interest in high school, sort of intellectually, was history, and especially military history, because my father, again, was something of a history and military history buff. So I'd read a lot of books. Um, and after my freshman year, I realized that God did not put me on the planet to be a biochemist. Uh, I wasn't doing particularly well at any of it. And I decided to switch my major to history and from there to international relations, because the, um, the history I cared about was international history, and, and this was paradise found. I mean, as soon as I started taking uh, courses uh, in, in international relations, I, you know, I found them fascinating and decided my junior year that I wanted to go to grad school, get a PhD, and become a college professor. And I've been extraordinarily fortunate that it all kind of worked out as I hoped it would, and the subject continues to fascinate me.
0: It's interesting that you say that because, uh, you know, in the time that you've been a professor, the field has continued to move away from history and diplomatic history and much more into the realm of sort of empirical social science.
1: Well, I I like to think that I came of age intellectually. It's sort of this wonderful sweet spot in American social science and, and political science where people were very interested in theory. Uh, There was still a a lot of grounding in history, and the people I worked with, Alex George at Stanford and Ken Waltz at Berkeley, were were deeply immersed in history as well. And these were also a period where academics were still sort of actively involved in real-world politics. Uh, They weren't just living in the ivory tower. And again, the mentors I had uh, and a lot of the other people I rubbed antenna with back then uh you know wanted to be serious scholars wanted to be real academics but wanted to say something about what was happening in the real world i'm not sure that has been as true for the last 20 or 30 years although there are some signs that the pendulum is sort of swinging back and younger scholars are now being more engaged which i think is terrific
0: Absolutely. So I think that provides us a perfect opening into your book because while your book is grounded in some of the academic debates about grand strategy, it is very much geared at real-world policy solutions. So, so much of what's going on in current events really feeds into this book and I really just want to start by getting the controversial question in your book out of the way right up front. Did foreign policy really help Donald Trump win the presidency?
1: Uh, I think it did. I don't think it was the most important factor. I mean, obviously, uh, issues of economic uh, anxiety, uh, I think issues of race and immigration played into it. Uh, There was, I think, just sort of Clinton fatigue, if you will, uh, that undermined the the Clinton candidacy. So there's a lot going on here. But foreign policy was not irrelevant, Um, and you see this in Trump in the campaign uh, took dead aim at... Uh, all of his predecessors, you know, declaring in one speech that American foreign policy is a complete and total disaster. Um, And, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton could not respond to that by saying, well, here are five successes that are really big wins because there just weren't a lot of them. Um, And it's, again, worth noting that Trump was attacked, obviously, by Democrats, of whom there were many supporting Clinton, but he was attacked by many, uh, over 100 senior foreign policy experts in the Republican Party uh, in quite extreme terms you know one letter uh, of theirs calling him utterly unfit for office um, and the point is i think that when trump leveled that critique and said that the foreign policy elite is out of touch and unaccountable i think a lot of americans nodded their heads in agreement and they were attracted to what he was selling just one final point is it's interesting All uh, the past four presidents, all of them have run for office promising to do less in foreign policy, to be less active on the international stage. Bill Clinton said it's the economy, stupid. George Bush said it was going to be a humble foreign policy with no nation building. Barack Obama says he's going to end wars. And Trump, of course, attacks the whole thing. When they get in office, they act differently. But they understand that the American people think we are carrying... Uh, Too great a burden overseas, but more importantly, we're carrying the burdens that we should take in a pretty uh, unsophisticated and ineffective way.
2: Do you think that focus on foreign policy and, and being outspoken against the status quo really helped him more in the early stages of his campaign when he was when he was competing against all of the other Republican candidates? Or do you think that really helped him more after it was just he and Hillary Clinton? battling it out?
1: I think it was both. Um, Obviously, once he's up against a former Secretary of State, it probably resonated a a bit more. But but part of what Trump was playing off, uh, I think it's quite clear, was a sense of anger, resentment, uh, concern about the status quo. And you put him up against all of the Republicans. All of the Republicans were, in effect, defending the status quo on foreign policy. And Trump was quite different. He really took uh, issue with him in a variety of ways. Did it in a very combative uh, fashion. Uh, that was quite effective. And I think, again, in terms of uh, this was not based on sort of a sophisticated analysis of policy options in different parts of the world. It was the attitude he was conveying and the sense that I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to shake things up. I'll drain the swamp. I'm not tied to all of these policies that have been failing for a long time. And, of course, his Republican... Opponents were defending those same policies. Because there isn't that much difference between the foreign policy that the traditional Republican elite and the foreign policy of the Democratic Party foreign policy elite have been pursuing for the last 25 years.
2: Yeah, I think that really leads into an important point from your book where you quote Colin Powell right after the Cold War, pointing out that the US military was out of enemies and down to Castro and Kim Il-sung. It's frankly impressive how the U.S. has turned perhaps the greatest position of strength we've ever seen in foreign policy into a bit of a disaster. So what do you think happened? Why has li- liberal hegemony been such a failure in recent years?
1: Okay. Well, again, in terms of what happened, I think you just compare where we were at the beginning of the Cold War, the end. Of, sorry, the end of the Cold War and where we are today. In 1993- 94, you know, democracy is spreading. Our relationship with Russia is pretty good. Our relationship with China isn't bad. Globalization is proceeding. The Oslo process uh, seems to be bringing peace in, in the Middle East. Uh, nuclear proliferation, we think, is being uh reasonably capped uh, iraq's disarmed iran has no uh, enrichment capacity it's a great world and we think the wind is at our back and we adopt this policy of liberal hegemony which by liberal i mean spreading sort of classic liberal values and by hegemony i mean uh the us is going to run this we're the indispensable nation and we basically set out to try and make as much of the world as possible remake it in America's image. Um, Now you look at the world today, relations with Russia and China are terrible. Uh, Democracy is in retreat in many parts of the world, according to multiple sources. The Middle East is in flames. Uh, Regime change uh, didn't work in any number of different places. Uh, We're further away from peace in the Middle East than ever before. And globalization didn't work out the way we, we thought. Um, and there's pretty easy to explain why that is. Uh, under liberal hegemony, uh, first of all, we extended our security commitments. By 2016, the United States was committed to defend more countries than at any time in its history. And that allowed, of course, allies to free ride and some of them to um, behave recklessly because they were confident America would bail them out. Um, spreading democracy, of course, threatens non-democracies like Russia and China, and they took steps to thwart us in a variety of places. And finally, regime change. We showed that we don't know how to create democracy. Once we've toppled a foreign government, we end up not with a thriving uh, democratic state. We end up with a failed state and a costly occupation. So as much as I like democracy, human rights, free markets, and all of those traditional liberal values, it turns out they're a great thing to have here in the United States, but they're very hard to export. And that's what we've been doing under both Democratic and Republican administrations, just not very successfully.
0: You know, you seem pretty sure in the book and here that where the US is today in terms of foreign policy, um, that we in many respects brought ourselves to this point, that it's the failures of liberal hegemony that, that lead us to see uh, a revanchist Russia, a resurgent China, not resurgent, I guess a surging China. Um, but. This is a question I sometimes wrestle with myself. I wonder how much of this is the failures of liberal hegemony and how much of this would have happened anyway. I mean, a lot of people have been saying that the rise of China was always inevitable. Is it really liberal hegemony and failed regime change or or is it just the natural shifts?
1: Well, I make the point in the book that the United States is not solely responsible for all of these things, Um, but we had our fingerprints on a lot of them. So yes, uh, China I think would have continued to rise, perhaps not quite as fast, but uh, would have continued to rise regardless. Regardless of what the United States uh, did in the 90s and and afterwards. But a lot of the other stuff we really uh, played a role in. You sort of imagine the world would be very different if we had not embraced NATO expansion, right, which poisoned the relationship with Russia. We We should have stuck with the Partnership for Peace, which was a collaborative exercise in which Russia was going to be a full participant. Would not have endangered Russia. So the situation in Europe would be radically different. Our relationship with Russia would be different. Um, I think if we had not adopted dual containment in the Persian Gulf, where we said we're going to contain Iraq and Iran simultaneously, which required us to keep a lot of troops in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in the Gulf, which of course is one of the reasons Osama bin Laden gave for attacking us on September 11th. Of course, no September 11th means no Iraq war. Right. And absent the Iraq war, then lots of other things are are much better uh, as well. So, again, I think it is this strategy that's responsible for a lot of the trouble uh, we've seen. And also, finally, uh, one more thing. I mean, I think we pushed globalization faster than we should have in a variety of different ways while mismanaging the American economy. And so the financial crisis in 2008, which is clearly part of this, and to some degree linked to to foreign policy, then hits Europe and causes the euro crisis and some of the problems with democracy we're now seeing in Europe. Again, we're not solely responsible, but but we bear a lot of the blame.
2: So are you really saying that this is kind of a problem of where we're trying to put our finger on the scale in certain areas, we're putting too many fingers on the scale, or have we just like smashed the scale with a hammer and called it ours?
1: Well, part of it was there was a certain overweening pride in all of this. I mean, if you look at... Um different documents and task force reports and statements about what American foreign policy should be, like national security strategies and things like that. What's remarkable about them is we've defined the entire world as a vital interest and basically said the United States should have its fingers in the politics of almost every part of the world, almost every country. We have to be either militarily committed there or actively engaged in trying to make those countries more like the United States or bring them into institutions that we run and uh, that we control. There's sort of no inch of the planet is left to itself. Um, And for a country that for all our wealth and power and strength is still only about 5% of the world's population, that's a remarkably ambitious agenda. When you think about it, it also makes it almost impossible to accomplish anything because something you do in one place is going to undermine something you're trying to do somewhere else. And no president, no matter how skillful or how dedicated, is going to be able to keep track of all of the different things, all of the different projects that the United States is engaged in. And the result is that we try to do so many things, we end up not succeeding at hardly any of them.
0: So it won't come as any surprise to people that regularly listen to the podcast that I agree with you. And that this is things that we have been saying on this podcast and Cato more generally for quite some time now. Um, But you do something else in the book, which is that you try to diagnose how did we get here? Um, How did we come to a point where we keep pursuing the strategy of liberal hegemony that's been quite destructive to our own interests Without actually stopping and reconsidering why we're doing it, so this has been a 25-year or more project at this point. Um, and you talk a lot about the foreign policy elites, or what Ben Rhodes once referred to as the blob. Now, this is a group that I think everyone in this room could plausibly claim to actually be a member of the foreign policy elites. But you say that in general, the elites are the problem.
1: Right. So the great puzzle is why the United States adopted this uh, ambitious program after the Cold War, because we were already in great shape. The United States was doing remarkably well, very secure. We could have taken a victory lap, uh, given ourselves a high five and adopted a more restrained, uh, more limited foreign policy and probably been in in much better shape as a result. And we chose not. We chose the other option. I think it was partly because, you know, we were the unipolar power and we didn't face any opposition. We thought we could. We also thought that history was running in this direction. All these values were were, uh, already having. So this was going to be easy to do. Other countries we're going to welcome this benevolent role we had set for ourselves. Um, And finally, the United States is sort of a very liberal country. We believe in these values. It's hard to resist the temptation to bring them to others. But the final part is that within Washington and within what I call the foreign policy elite, there was a very powerful bipartisan consensus in favor of doing this, partly because these different groups... uh, uh, believe in the values, but also because, in a sense, it's a full employment policy for the foreign policy elite. It gives them lots to do, and it gives all the different factions within it some part of the puzzle. Uh, there's a lot of log rolling that goes on. Some groups want us to advance human rights, others want us to prevent proliferation, others want us to remake uh, the Middle East, others want us to help defend Eastern Europe, others want us to do something in Asia, etc. Well if everybody gets a little chunk of that, the United States ends up being very busy itself. And I I try to show in the book how, how powerful this consensus is, um, that people who uh, aspire to careers in Washington understand that they're just lines you don't want to get outside. Um, and in particular, I argue that the It's not a complete consensus. There are groups like Cato that have a different view of this. But within Washington, there's a real imbalance of power between the number of individuals, groups, and organizations who want more, want the United States to be more engaged, more active, show more leadership, intervene in more places, and the groups that think the United States should be doing less. The former are far more numerous, better funded, better organized than the latter. And that helps explain why... Three very different presidents, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, follow remarkably similar policies and why Donald Trump, having promised that he's going to do everything differently, has ended up doing a lot of the same things too.
2: I see your point, but I think it's also kind of interesting that not all of the things that you're talking about are equally as destructive as you see it in your own terms. So, you know being more diplomatically engaged in the world is not necessarily going to have the same effect as being more militarily engaged in the world. And I think there's kind of a a lurking variable that you're, you're alluding to here, but it's also, I see a problem of kind of the over militarization of our foreign policy that has really taken place since the cold war. It's, it's not just advocating for nuclear non-proliferation in diplomatic terms. It's also our military adventurism that has created a lot of these problems. And so do you see all of these things happening kind of equally as, as a, the blob as a unit or are some things less destructive, some things more useful to creating the world order that you would have us be in?
1: Yeah, no, I, I try to make it very clear in the in the book that this is not an argument for isolationism or fortress America or disengagement, but I agree completely that one of the things that happened over the last um, 25 years was what you're calling militarization. I would almost call it that the United States forgot about genuine diplomacy most of the time and adopted a very unilateralist and coercive attitude. If some country uh, wasn't doing what we wanted, uh, we made demands, we issued ultimatums, and we then said, if you don't do what we tell you, we're going to start ramping up the pressure. We'll put sanctions on you. We'll ratchet those up. If necessary, we'll threaten you with military force and in some cases, we'll use military force. We forgot that in order to get agreements with other countries, you always have to give them some of the things that are vital to them. You can't insist on getting 100% all of the time. Um, And that's, I think, actually become difficult in our domestic politics because if any president comes back with a deal that doesn't give... Uh, us, absolutely everything we might have wished for, his domestic opponents will immediately attack them for not doing enough. You saw this with the Iran deal, uh, for for example. So I believe one of the things we need to do going forward is rediscover the value of genuine diplomacy, that this is the way uh, serious countries resolve differences and accomplish their basic terms without recourse to military force diplomacy should be our first instinct and military force and sanctions should be our last resort we've kind of reversed that in the last 25 years because we could we were in such a powerful position we thought we could sort of tell the world what to do
0: i think it's also important that we point out that this isn't just a recent phenomenon because a lot of people say that it is just its over militarization it's the war on terror and we only go back to 2001 and the excesses of george w bush with this but a couple of the examples that you gave earlier nato expansion, jewel containment, those go all the way back to the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, back into the Clinton administration, and those are fundamentally military ways of engaging with the world, expanding a military alliance, which sets us up for a confrontation with Russia in the future, using military force in the Persian Gulf, where before we had typically pursued a strategy of offshore balancing, tried to remain more diplomatically engaged. So this is a problem of liberal hegemony. It's not just a problem of the war on terror.
1: Right, And, and a certain amount of overconfidence that, as I said before, that uh, I think the Clinton administration, but their successors as well, genuinely believe this was the right thing to do but also that it would be welcome. Again, there would be a few thugs and tyrants and dictators who wouldn't like that, but the people around the world really wanted to join in this broad liberal project, and therefore, we wouldn't face a lot of opposition. We would actually be welcome in in all of this. And this was sort of forgetting, uh, if I... Can say it realism one hundred and one. You know, great powers have interests. They're going to be alarmed by what's happening. Governments do not, in fact, want to be overthrown either by an American invasion or by their own people, and they will do things to try and prevent that from happening. Um, and that that possibility was almost lost. You know, I think you know, for example, um, U.S. leaders genuinely believed that expanding NATO was not threatening to Russia. They didn't intend it to be a threat to Russia. They told the Russians, this is not a threat to them. And I think they meant it almost all the time. But that doesn't mean that the Russians are going to believe it, right? And the important part is not what we think we're doing. The important part is what other countries think we're doing. And in a number of cases, obviously other countries didn't like it and were able to take steps to thwart it.
2: I think recent trends are almost kind of alarming, especially in um, diplomacy right now of, of, you know, getting rid of the Iran deal and how many embassies around the world do not currently have ambassadors um, is I find incredibly alarming. So I don't know how you see the Trump administration handling this differently. If they want to do less and be less adventurous, how are they supposed to fill that void if if not through diplomacy?
0: Well, perhaps this is actually a really good lead into uh, your book's Solution. So you advocate for a new US approach to the world, for offshore balancing, a term that would be pretty familiar to realists, to people that studied academic IR, maybe not so much to the general public. So if if Donald Trump's administration or future administration wants to fix this, how how can they fix it?
1: Well, offshore balancing is really what American grand strategy has been at various points in our... Uh, history It recognizes the United States is incredibly secure, that geography is still very much to our advantage, and that the primary concern for the United States should be to make sure there is no other country in the world that is as powerful as we are and that dominates its region uh, the same way we dominate the western hemisphere where we have no real enemies we don't worry about you know canada invading minnesota or anything like that Um, and traditionally the united states has worked to make sure that no other country could do that that's why we fought world war one that's why we fought world war two and that's why we waged the cold war to prevent the soviet union from dominating either europe or asia Um, today there's no country that threatens to dominate Europe. So the United States really doesn't need to be engaged there. The Europeans actually have the wherewithal to meet their national security needs and we should be encouraging them to do that by continuing to reduce our role there. Middle East, no one's gonna dominate the Middle East now because the place is more divided than it's ever been. So the United States doesn't have to be very actively involved. We should be diplomatically engaged with all countries in the region and have sort of special relationships with none of them. Asia, and this is where you do get some disagreements uh, among people of my uh, tribe, I guess, Um, Asia, I think China is a potential regional hegemon, a potential uh, serious rival for the United States. And so the United States needs to focus a lot of diplomatic attention, but also military commitments in Asia to uh, to balance China. That's a very different foreign policy than the previous three administrations and that's also a very different foreign policy than the one that trump is pursuing and certainly his inattention and disinterest in diplomacy is the complete opposite of what i think is called for now
0: yeah so you basically advocate for the creation of a coalition to try and sort of shift foreign policy over a period of time um, you know creating an alliance between people who advocate whether it's offshore balancing, whether it's restraint, creating a pipeline for young talent so that they don't necessarily have to stay inside the the 10-yard lines of foreign policy, um, and just trying to reshape foreign policy over the long term rather than turn the US government on a dime. Um, Do you think that's possible?
1: Yeah, I think it's possible, but it's not possible by next week. Uh, I think, you know, this was a a question for me as I finished the book. I didn't want to end it on a downer of sort of say, well, I'm sorry, the blob is all powerful and nothing can ever be done. I don't really think that's the case. Uh, I even would go so far as to say I think the United States will gradually come around to a more restrained, more sensible uh, foreign policy. And in some respects, I've written the book to try and accelerate that process somewhat. But it does, I think, ultimately require creating a slightly different foreign policy elite than the one we have and in particular one that shows a wider range of views and a broader consensus. Uh, That imbalance of power between people who want to try and run the world and people who want to try and keep the United States safe and prosperous uh, has to become a little bit more even right Because I don't think uh, it's it's balanced at all. And that, as you were suggesting, requires you know educating young people who want to get into these careers, uh, providing organizations and movements that can give them good jobs so that they have career paths as well. I think something you know, Cato is is trying to do. And this may not work. It may not succeed, but that, it seems to me is the only, sort of promising avenue to having a foreign policy that more reflects what the american people actually want as opposed to the uh, preferences of a rather rarefied and i think increasingly out of touch elite
2: do you have any optimism heading into the upcoming election cycles. I think there has been a lot of movement on these areas and a lot of grassroots movements um, towards unconventional candidates. So I think what you're advocating for is wonderful and and I would hope that we're starting to see that in some ways, but I'm I'm wondering if you have that same sense of optimism.
1: Um <laughs> Talk to me in two weeks after the congressional elections. I think that's a, that's a very interesting sign, and in as as uh, Trevor Thrall and others have have um, pointed out, there's really some differences with millennials, for example, over say what their parents uh, might have believed as well. Um, I think, you know, most politicians uh, have a, a weather vane quality to them. And I think you could see more dramatic changes if, you know, a handful of candidates with unconventional positions do very well and, you know, then get reelected. And suddenly people who've defended the mainstream view on issue A or B or C suddenly realize there's space to take a different position and maybe it's smart to take a different position. So, you know, this is one of those areas where you could imagine some swings and you could imagine some interesting interesting coalitions uh, of sort of, you know, what I would call progressive non-interventionist liberals, kind of Bernie Sanders liberals, um, realists like me, uh, maybe some uh, genuine libertarians like might hang out uh, around here. These are groups that don't agree on a lot of issues, but they agree on a lot of foreign policy issues. So, you know, we can put aside our disagreements on some domestic stuff for a while and say, Let's have that fight after we fixed America's relationship with the rest of the world. I think that'd be a very positive development.
0: Well, I really hope you're right. And I think it's a very positive vision for the future that you present in the book. But I, I do want to just hit on one other possibility, which is the idea that US foreign policy might not change gradually. It might change in response to some kind of external shock. Something might force us. To change our foreign policy. Do you think that's likely? What kind of thing could actually force us to change our foreign policy? I
1: I talk about that in the book. And there's sort of two possibilities that come to mind. One is a genuine, really horrific disaster. One of these moments where you suddenly get hit in the head and you say, we got to do something differently. But when you think about it, if September 11th and the financial crisis and the Iraq war weren't enough to really change the course here, really get a rethinking, get people in the blob to go, oh my God, what we've been advocating doesn't make much sense. If that wasn't enough, you know, how big a disaster would it have to be? And by the way, I don't want a disaster like that to befall the United States. so It's hard to wish for that. Second possibility is that China really does become the 1,200 pound gorilla and it forces the United States to get more disciplined. That A lot of these crazy projects we've tried to do because we thought we could do anything and we didn't have any enemies, we have to become focused again. Um, The problem there is, you know, if you're an American and you want the United States to do well, you don't want a situation where... if China, China in this scenario has to be just powerful enough to get us to sober up, but not so powerful that it can actually dominate us or control us. I don't know if I can control that. So I don't wish for that. What I want is the third scenario is that the United States looks inward and fixes what's wrong, sort of learns from the mistakes of the last 25 years and continues to engage in the world, but in a much smarter way over time. So that regardless of where China ends up, regardless of what happens in other parts of the world, we're in good shape and we're reasonably prosperous, and we continue to be true to our basic values.
2: I mean, I think that there is maybe another possibility of a constraining force that would not necessarily be as destructive as you're talking about. And for me, I mostly work on the defense budget and international arms sales, so I'm kind of all weapon systems all the time. but I'm particularly worried about rising debts and deficits, and our current fiscal reality eventually becoming a really valid constraint on military budgets and forcing change that way. Do you see kind of one of those less destructive versions of a sea change happening?
1: Yeah, and and I mean the the obvious uh, precedent for that was the budget sequester of a few years ago, which was forced by you know, sort of deficit hawks in the Republican Party uh, refusing to pass budgets. And they eventually, you know, cluge together kind of a deal uh, at the end. So I think that could be part of it, but it does require um, a certain amount of genuine uh, and I would argue sort of principled concern about how much we're spending. So far, as I indicate, the way we've been able to to justify or uh, sell this particular strategy is by hiding the cost as much as possible you relying on the all-volunteer force uh, so there's no draft um, basically uh, deficit you know borrowing the money in order to finance these wars which means my grandchildren are paying for it not not me um, and I guess I'm I'm not confident that that's going to be a consistent um uh, a consistent solution because the advocates of this will say, you know, t- find the money someplace else. Either we can always borrow more or we can cut entitlements or we can do a variety of other things. Um, we, people don't want to raise taxes, but that might come about as well. I and mean, I hope you're right. I hope that uh, concern for p- fiscal discipline, which is very sort of, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower-like, um, uh, would, be, would be enough. But I guess I'm not quite confident that that will do it.
0: Well, maybe the millennials will save us all. Yeah, <laughs> well, That's a positive note to end on. And and I will say that for a realist, this book is impressively optimistic about the future of US foreign policy.
1: Well, the United States is a very lucky country and all we have to do is try and take advantage of that good fortune.
0: You heard it here, folks. So that's all we have time for today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, thanks to Carolyn for helping me co-host while Trevor's out. And I'd also like to thank our producer, Jeff Geld, and everybody at home for listening. You can find us on Twitter at CatoFP if you want to continue the conversation.